0: The Video Insiders is the show that makes sense of all that is happening in the world of online video, as seen through the eyes of a second-generation Kodak nerd and a marketing guy who knows what iframes and macro blocks are. And here are your hosts, Mark Donigan and Drew
1: Gill. So, hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Video Insiders. I'm Drew Gill, and with me, my co-host, Mark Donigan. Hey, Mark, how are you doing today?
0: Drawer I'm doing great. It's always uh, awesome to be on the microphone and to be talking to a, a video insider, which we have a great interview lined up today.
1: Yes, today we definitely have a video insider with us and I'm uh, happy to welcome Tsachi Levent Levi, who is the founder of Blog Geek Me and also the CPO of Spearline to the podcast. So welcome Tsachi.
0: Hi,
2: and thank you. Glad to be here with you.
0: Yeah, welcome, Sahi. We really, really look forward to uh, this conversation. WebRTC is so hot right now. Uh, It seems like its day has come.
1: Yes, and Sahi is is definitely, I would say, one of the world's leading experts on WebRTC and video communication in general. So we are really fortunate to have him uh, on uh, the podcast today. And actually, the way this uh, started is that, Mark, I think you sent me an email or asked me Do you know this guy, Tzahi Levent Levy? I think uh, we should have him on the show. (laughs) Yeah. And you're telling me he really knows how to present uh, technical material and how to engage the audience and how to promote all this content that he's producing. And I said, wait a minute. I think I know the guy. Maybe from 15, 20 years ago when I was working as a consultant and Tsachi was at Radvision. Uh, So we worked together for a while, and we've been sort of at least virtually connected uh, since then. So I reached out, and uh, gladly he agreed to come. So, uh, Tzachim, maybe we'll start by hearing about you, uh, your personal background, your experience.
2: Okay, so I'm a developer, although I haven't written a line of code for more than 10 years now, which is quite sad. Um, I started, let's say, my grown-up life, probably at the age of 13, starting to actually write code for money in different places then went to the university yeah, computer science obviously and from there went to my real true do- job at um, radvision which did at the time video conferencing systems and in there i went to the uh, technology business unit what we did was license h2.3 and other protocol stacks to other companies to build their own products so my code was everywhere from polycom devices to Cisco, to anyone else. Anyone that used H323 at the time ended up licensing something from RadVision. And my code was in there. I became a project leader, then was in charge of the whole development of a few of the protocol stacks.
1: And at that time, we're talking, I guess, about H323, H324, SIP, things like that, right?
2: Yes, exactly. And then I became a product manager by mistake and left the whole path of actually developing. Then I became the CTO and system architect in my business unit. And then WebRTC came out. And at that point in time, I saw that there is something different and new out there. So we played with it a bit. And then I went to my bosses and said, look, there is is this thing called WebRTC. We need to invest time in it. I don't know what it is that we're going to do. Give me half a year to play and the developer to play with. The answer was no budget. And then the next day they come and say, well, you need to plan 2012 so we can budget that and I said that's great but it's not going to be me because I'm going elsewhere. If there is nothing here related to WebRTC that I can explore and my role is CTO which needs to look into the future there is nothing for me to do here. So I left and went to work at Amdocs of all places unrelated to video or WebRTC or VoiceOver IP or HE23. And after a year and a half there, I switched to working part-time because when I started working there, I opened my own blog, BlogGeekMe. And that's because at Radvision, one of the things that I did when I got bored was started the blogs at Radvision. And we got to a point at the time for a corporate blog in 2011, where we had 20,000 page views a month and about 400 people subscribed to the newsletter and actually reading it and interacting with us over email or the comments, which was great. But the moment I left, I lost all of that crowd and I decided that I'm not going to leave that in any place that I work. I'm going to have a place of my own for that and that's how Blogic Me started. I didn't know what I'm going to write about. After two or three months, I wrote, decided to write three posts about WebRTC, what it's going to do to, do to the endpoint, what it's going to do to signaling and what it means to the industry. These immediately became the most interesting post and most read posts on my blog. So I continued writing about that a bit until Serge LaChapelle, he was the product manager for WebRTC at Google at the time, reached out and said, I understand that you have this Google sheet with the list of vendors in the industry. Can you give me access to that? I said, yes. And I shared it with him. And then he came back and said, thank you. You do understand that if you wanted and asked, I would have paid for that. (laughs) Then I understood that something is wrong. That was the point where I moved part-time and got immediately um, a seminar to do, a workshop to do somewhere in Europe uh, to a large carrier. And then on that day that I left, I sent an email to Serge and told him, you know, the part of paying, I'm now a freelancer, you can actually pay. And he actually did. So I got sponsored by Google internally for about two or three years ongoing with him just for having access to that thing and just for me writing whatever I want and whatever I thought about WebRTC. So it's like I owe my adult life in some way or another to Serge LaChapelle. And from there, I had to move and go to working full-time in the blog and providing consulting and doing services through my blog there, courses, reports, and insight service that I now have. And then came along someone and asked to open a company I told him I don't have time for that and suggested to do something about WebRTC testing. He came back with other people, other partners, and we opened that company together. It was called TestRTC. And a year ago, we sold that to Spearline, where I'm now the chief product officer of the whole company, not only the WebRTC testing and monitoring part. So I have these two hats on my head, one related to WebRTC consulting and the evangelism that I'm doing and handling product at Spearline that offers testing and monitoring for phone numbers and for products.
1: Great. So you you started with uh, with consulting and, and content creation and then had kind of a, a spin-off for testing, which you managed uh, to get an exit. That's awesome. And now you're continuing with both?
2: Yes, I love doing both. And the problem is that after I went into consulting, after the first year, I sat down with myself and said, well, you need a head to do these things, but what do I want out of life? What do I need to do tomorrow? How do I grow my business? And it dawned on me that the only thing I want from my business, my you know private business, is to have fun. If I'm not having fun, I'm not doing that. So I'm not going to take customers that are not fun to work with, projects that are boring to me. I'm just going to do things that are interesting for me and with people that it's interesting to do it with. It was the same when we got acquired. The whole process, the whole year I was sitting there in these video calls. They, by the way, they acquired us without seeing us. We never met in person until about a month ago. There was no need to travel in a way.
1: Which is part of the promise of the whole WebRTC and video communication.
0: That's right.
2: <laughs> yes. And I sat there and I'm speaking to Kevin, the CEO of Spearline. And the only thing that I'm thinking is, do I want to work to this, with this person or not? And always the answer was yes, which meant that I, you know, I said yes to being acquired. And then when they came and asked me, the two co-founders there said, you know, we don't have a chief product officer. We need someone, and you're probably good at that job because we see what you're doing, you know, in test RTC for us today. There was no other choice but saying yes because I knew the team that I'm going to work with. They were all awesome, and I knew my managers there, so I, I just couldn't say no. And that meant leaving a bit doing a bit less consulting in me, but doing something slightly different and going back into, let's call it, the enterprise world and working inside the company with other uh, employees, colleagues, partners, whatever. So, you know, it's back to a slightly different experience, but not, nonetheless fun.
0: So, Sahi, you know, thank you for uh, that amazing uh, introduction. And draw and I, I know, are very much in the same mindset as you are that, you reach a place in life where you say, hey, you know, we all have different goals and objectives, but fun has to be one of them. <laughs> so having fun with the people we work with, our clients, you know, our our uh, colleagues, et cetera. I know you have probably many examples and maybe you can't be so specific about some of the projects that you've worked on. Um, But uh, I would love it if you could share with us, uh, you know, maybe, you know, something that you're building now or you have built that you're really excited about using WebRTC or maybe it's an application because I, I stated in the intro that That WebRTC, I really feel, is a technology stack. And and as time has come for applications that absolutely transcend traditional video conferencing, you know, which is what most people think of. What can you tell us about uh, what you built or, or see being built or, you know?
2: So I never built anything with WebRTC. It's mostly helping other companies figure out either what they need to build, how to build it, or how to fix what they've done when it's broken. Uh, So that was the main part of the consulting part. Then there's a whole training space of giving people the tools so that they will understand WebRTC up to a level that they can continue on their own. And that was a really interesting experience to go and try to explain something. And the part that we've actually built was TestRTC. The product that goes and does testing and monitoring for WebRTC, it has like everything around WebRTC, just not the WebRTC part. So in order to test something that uses WebRTC, you need to be able to understand the statistics and you need to be able to run machines in the cloud and automate them. I scale a system that runs browsers, not a system that runs WebRTC infrastructure, which is interesting. Uh, When we monitor, it's the same thing. So there is a lot there that is really challenging because one thing that happens is if someone comes and asks you to their phone number or to test their phone. That's easy. There is a phone number, you dial, you hear audio, there is some voice, that's it. That's the whole set of features. And then you can either connect with PSTN or SIP. That's it. Either directly through the telephone or SIP as a voice over IP protocol. Now with WebRTC, there is no signaling, so that's one problem. How do you define signaling for each and every customer? There is no exact scenario or use case. So you can do an audio call with WebRTC. You can do a recording of a podcast like this one, where we see each other in our own video, but that's not going to be recorded. The recording here is not done by media server. It's done locally and then uploaded to the cloud and then mixed in post-processing. But I can do the same thing, just mix it immediately. There are different ways to implement the same thing and each one of them, it's not good or bad, it's just good for certain use cases. You can do video conferencing, webinars, live streaming, just one too many, And then you can do things like remote work, which is not exactly video conferencing. It's ambient video, ambient voice. And then you get customers come and say, well, do we have best practices? Can you compare us to others? No, I can't, because I don't know who these others are. You can't even compare Google Meet to Zoom. I mean, you can to some extent, but it's really, really hard because when the layout is slightly different and the resolutions are slightly different, it's going to get skewed in terms of what does it mean to have better quality in such a case? Because it's not no longer apples to apples. It's not this voice call versus that voice call. So a lot of what we're trying to do these days with TestRTC is, first of all, simplify it or dumb it down so more people will be able to use our service and then try to build and integrate these types of best practices across the different, let's call them large use cases that we see in the industry.
0: Interesting. And I know that you put a blog post up uh, fairly recently, you know, talking about how to tweak WebRTC video quality. Why don't you share with the listeners some of those specific best practices and what you shared in that? Of course, we'll we'll put in the show notes uh, a link to this post.
2: I guess the first thing I do when someone comes and has issues is start with what is the use case? What is it that you're doing? Then you start by counting the actual streams. Is it a group call? Okay, how many participants in that call? Is everyone has their cameras open or only some of them? What do you show on the display of the user? How many participants? What do you show for each one of the resolutions? Are all of their microphones open? Why are these questions important? Each and every one of them alludes itself to how much CPU is needed? that's one and the other one is how much bitrate is needed the two biggest resources that you need for your or any video conferencing service for that matter is CPU to do the encoding and the decoding so you need to be very aware someone in comes and says I do a video call when I have five or six people it starts breaking down two immediate questions first of all do you have a media server or are you doing mesh 90% of the time they do mesh and just go bring a media server and that will solve your problem. The other 10% will be like, well, yes, it's a media server. And then you ask, okay, what bit rates do you send? And they said, oh, well, HD, we want an HD call. And that's nice that you want high definition call. But if you're trying to send 720p five times on a network and expect a browser on the other side, let's say on an iPhone eight device to be able to decode it all, it won't be able to. Nor would the machine from 2018.
1: So how do you know if your CPU bounded or if you're bandwidth bounded when, when the quality is not good?
2: So first of all, it's always both. If someone comes with a problem and doesn't know the answer, he's got both issues. Uh, but there are several things. First of all, I start counting bit rates and pixels. How many pixels do you show on the screen and how many pixels you're sending? I'm not even looking at how much compression you have there. But what are you sending versus how much you're viewing? If you're sending more than you're viewing, then you can reduce the bit rates or you can reduce the resolutions, which will reduce the bit rates on the sending side. Okay, so there are these small things of just asking questions that are not that hard to answer. And that gives you a lot of insights on what you can start optimizing. To your question, today WebRTC gives you, uh, at least on uh, Chrome, There's a statistics called quality something limitation that the encoder spews out. So whenever the encoder creates a frame, he would look and say, well, I need to create a frame. Can I use whatever resources I want? Yes. Great. So there are no limitations. Is there a CPU problem? Yes, there is. I need to reduce the bitrate because of a CPU problem. Then I need to remember that I had a CPU issue. Or am I going to reduce the bitrate because someone said that the estimate, the bitrate estimator on the network says that I don't have enough bitrate, I lower the bitrate. And then it will tell you that this is how it is um, running. Now this works great, but it's only on the encoder side. So you can do it only if you are sending media. What happens if the only thing that you're doing is viewing? How do you know that there is enough? And then there's this dance that happens between both ends, usually a client and a server, where each one of them tells the other what, what his status is, what he can do, what it can't do. And all of that happens inside a protocol called RTCP. Okay, real-time control protocol, which is part of RTP, real-time protocol. I'm sending the media over RTP, and I'm sending the control and receiving the control messages from the other side on RTCP. And it will tell me things like, well, I received, you know, 20 packets. I lost three along the way. I saw Jitter with these values in it. So just know that there might be an issue clogging the network soon. And these types of uh, data points allow us in, in this conference for each side of the call or of the session to decide what is the nature of the network. So this is part of the things that you end up using once you optimize things. Now, optimizations have a lot of different aspects to them. I'm sure that you've talked about video codecs in the past, right? A video codec in the end is just a decoder. I say, given this bitrate, this is how you decode the data. That's it. But the encoder itself has a gazillion of tools that you can use in order to compress.
1: Exactly. The standard only defines the the bitstream and therefore the decoder. But all the smarts is in the encoder and which algorithms you use and which tools you employ and how you set certain values and all of that.
2: Yes, so in some ways it's applicable also to a group call or to live streaming or to whatever. This is a scenario that I have. I have these amount of tools in front of me. I can reduce bitrate, increase bitrate. I can use simulcast, which means having a client send more than one stream for the exact same data in different bitrates and resolutions and qualities. I can use SVC for a certain codecs, scalable video coding. I can decide not to send I can decide to reduce frame rate. If someone is muted on a call, I can reduce his frame rate because nobody cares about him. If he hasn't talked for long, I can reduce his frame rate even further. I might even throw him out of the screen and nobody will will notice and everyone will still be happy. Okay? On the audio side, I can decide to mute or unmute. I can decide to use DTX, discontinuous transmission in Opus, which means sending less data over the network. I can do that on the client side or the server side or both at the same time. I can send only part of the streams that have audio on them and the rest I can silence through the server. So these are all, there's a large set of tools that unfolds to you if you understand WebRTC enough and you understand not only the protocol, but also the architecture around that. And once you're there, it's like whatever the scenario is is and whatever the problem, you're going to start with, okay, what are the bit rates? What are you sending? What are you receiving? Where are you displaying it and why? What are you trying to achieve? Okay. Next question is usually, well, can you give me the statistics over time? And if you can't, let's figure a way to do that. So you'll have visibility into the solution, repeatability of being able to test that, being able to monitor so that you can see what your optimizations are doing and all of that will end up meaning what is the next optimization or the next tool that I'm going to do to improve the product that I have with WebRTC.
0: What I hear there is that there's a lot of I'll call it continuous improvement that is needed and that is true in an HTTP, you know, live streaming type scenario as well which is kind of more the world that like Draw and I typically work in you know there is tweaking of uh, the encoding recipes and and all but once you've kind of settled on a particular scheme you know for the profiles that you're you know that you're streaming via HLS or whatever in some cases it doesn't get touched for sometimes years (laughs) you know now that's not to say there isn't optimizations that are happening you know throughout the network but what you just described An optimization in WebRTC, it really is this continuous improvement where you are taking all of this data and there is just a a never-ending series of optimizations.
2: Yes, because the moment you get to the point that you say, well, I've had enough. Okay, either the solution is good enough or I don't think I can squeeze that lemon any further, comes in a new nasty requirement that you need to deal with. Okay, we started with a pandemic. And then guess what? Everyone needed to blur their background and replace it.
1: Because they're working from home. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs)
2: Yes. For the life of me, I don't understand why people want to remove their background. But that's me 10 years ago. And when I did video calls, my kids went into the room and they said hi. And you know, I'm, I'm a human being and a living, breathing person. I have a family, I don't want to hide them. So I'm not saying that this is good for everyone, but for me, it's I never replace the background. And then in came, well, we need to also do noise suppression because our neighbors are always you know renovating their house and we just can't have that or I have a dog that is barking or whatever. And you start seeing all of these things crop up into features that you need. And then you need to shove this into the envelope of CPU resources that you have. And then you go into another round of optimizations and trying to figure out things and how you do that and where to place that. That's what makes it endless. Now, if you look, for example, at CPaaS vendors, Communication Platform as a Service, Twilio, Vonage, the rest of the vendors that offer API, so they have WebRTC infrastructure ready made for you to just go and use. They didn't have background blurring. None of them did up until two years ago. Almost all of them have it today. Most of them are are starting to add noise suppression in machine learning. And then you see a new feature of live streaming that everyone is adding to their CPAS platform. This started with Agora saying that they are doing large 10,000 or a million user views of a single stream. Then you had Dolby Go and acquire Millicast, which did exactly that using WebRTC.
1: Right. And we had Millicast here on uh, on the podcast. Yeah.
2: And then this week we had LiveSwitch. They have their own SIPAS platform just added live streaming to their platform and then you get someone like Max adding video conferencing to a streaming platform.
0: Yeah that's right. Coming from the other direction. From the other side. Yeah Yeah, that's right. Yes. That's right. Very interesting. Yes. Or
2: the announcement today or yesterday from Cloudflare mm-hmm. where they introduced Cloudflare calls which is group calling using WebRTC in their cloud service. And then they came out with Cloudflare stream, which is millicast in the cloud by Cloudflare. So somehow everyone wants to add that as a feature into their... Pro- Sand- Sandbird also added the live streaming just a week or two ago. So it seems like every time you think that you're done and completed this annoyance of optimizing and adding these one or two features to your WebRTC infrastructure, you figure out that there are a few more that you need to do.
1: Yeah. So that's great for you. Uh, can you give maybe a word or two about the live streaming feature? How is it implemented? Is it part of WebRTC or do they tie in another protocol to enable that?
2: So there is no such a thing as part of WebRTC. OK, WebRTC is a kind of a, it's a protocol and a building block. If you think about it like that, it's just a media engine that sits inside the browser. Now, the great thing about that media engine is that it's real time, but it's only real time. So if I want to build something like Netflix that streams the same video movie over and over and over again to people, WebRTC is not good for that because you don't need real time. Real time costs you in some way. If you want to reduce latency, I need to give something back. And the thing that I sacrifice if I go to real time is quality. Why? Because if you take streaming today, you know that better than I do. If something gets lost, there is a packet loss on the network. You retransmit it. Nobody will even notice because you buffer enough seconds in advance. And at the worst case, you're stuck in buffering for a few seconds, and then everything is going back again. Okay? I'm dumbing it down a bit. With WebRTC, there is no such thing. I'm sending you something. If you don't receive it, there is no window of opportunity to even retransmit sometimes there is it's very small and there is very specific optimizations that you can use it for but there is no such thing as you know i had a packet loss for half a second well you lost the data for all of that half a second and there is no going back in time because it's real time so the first thing it was used for is video calls because everything needs to be live i can't speak to you if you can't answer it immediately But 10 people started saying, well, why not use it for live streaming as well? We do a webinar and instead of saying, hi, everyone, where are you from? And then counting to 10 until you see in the chat where they're from, because HLS is that ugly. okay? if you use WebRTC, they actually answer immediately. And then you can do things that are more interactive with it, like gambling, esports and stuff like that, or even telling people in the webinar what you want them to do and getting that feedback immediately. So that's what you end up doing with live streaming when it comes to WebRTC. But then what happens is that both ends use WebRTC, both the broadcaster and the viewers.
1: So WebRTC is this uh, standardized way for browsers to communicate with each other in audio, video, and and text. But now there are also these um, dedicated platforms or proprietary platforms or clients that communicate with audio and video and text and you know since the pandemic everybody is using Zoom and uh, Microsoft uh, Teams and Google Meet so each one of these um, major video communication platforms are they using WebRTC or are they using their own proprietary protocols because what I know for sure is that they can't talk with each other you can't have a zoom call to a uh, at least not directly, you can't call from a Zoom client to a Google Meet client or from a Teams to Skype or something like that.
2: So there's two things about that. First of all, the answer is it depends, or it's complicated. And the other one is an answer to your question, why would Zoom want you to be able to communicate with Microsoft Teams?
1: Yeah, for, for business reasons, it's not possible. I'm just asking about the technical part, if they're using the same protocol or not.
2: Technically, it doesn't matter if they use the same protocol or not. They can sit in the same room, decide how they do it, and then interoperate between. Okay, you have companies like Pixip that presumably can get you a user from Zoom, connected to Microsoft Teams, connected to Google Meet at the same time in the same room. So it is doable, even if you're not these vendors themselves.
1: Through some proxy.
2: Yes, and there is no incentive today because at the end of the day, if I look at what is the interoperability point of users today, it is either the browser or the mobile app. I installed the app and I'm done. I don't care about anything else. I have the phone, the phone is interoperable with all of these platforms at all times and people are just fine with installing their apps on their phones. And I can use the browser today to connect to anyone without installing anything. And that's because I have WebRTC. So it solved the problem of interoperability by saying, you know what, let's switch the problem and the conversation from, I want the network to interoperate to I want the end user to be able to pick and choose whatever it is that he needs for that specific moment in time. For the same reason that you don't ask, let's say the Department of Justice website to communicate with the bank directly, although you can send one to the other when you do payments. They don't need to interoperate, they just use HTTP, both of them, and HTML, and everyone's happy.
1: So is there a reason for Zoom, for example, not to use WebRTC, to use a proprietary protocol?
2: Yes. So let's start with the easy one: Google Meet, WebRTC, in and out. And the reason is simple: Google is the one behind WebRTC. They run on the web. This is what they want. They don't want application. They don't want to install anything. So that was easy. Zoom is the opposite. If you look at when Zoom started, I think 2012, that's when WebRTC started. It was too early to use WebRTC, so they decided to build on their own. It also makes sense because their CEO at the time was the CEO of Webex, which was sold to Cisco, and that's their web video conferencing solution. Building WooZoom was essentially copy-paste Webex with a few more learnings of what needed to be done to make it a bit more modern. It also means that when Zoom started working, they wanted to do things in a proprietary way because that's how the industry did things up to that point in time. And they saw no value in supporting WebRTC. At the time, it was a valid decision. If you start a company like Zoom today, you can't make that decision anymore. It makes no sense. They made the investment. They made the marketing decisions that made them a huge vendor before the pandemic and then exploding during the pandemic. So I would say that they won the market not because of WebRTC or in spite of WebRTC, just because of good execution on their part. Now, today they do have some kind of an implementation. It's not really WebRTC. And the reason it's not WebRTC is because they had proprietary technology in-house And now there is a question, what are you going to do? Are you going to switch everything to WebRTC when you're the market dominant leader? Okay. or Are you going to keep whatever it is that you have and stick to your uniqueness when that was like the origin story that you have as a company? So the answer is stick to it.
1: So what do they do for their browser? Uh, Do do they have a, uh, a web client?
2: They have a web client, it uses WebAssembly and WebTransport and web Codecs, which are a different set of protocols where you can say, or different solutions in a browser, where all of them together kind of unbundle WebRTC and allows you to build such a thing on your own and keep a lot of the know-how and experience proprietary. The only problem is that it doesn't get to the same level of quality that WebRTC gets on the same machine. It takes a lot more CPU and it crashes from time to time when you use it. So it's unusable to the extreme. That's at least today's situation. It will probably improve over time. Now, if you look at someone like Microsoft and Microsoft Teams, they want this to run in the browser, like everything else that they are moving into the browser as well. They also invested in Edge and decided to go on top of Chromium for that. So they're using the same browser engine as Google Chrome. And for them, again, they started with something proprietary because the origin story is Skype a lot before WebRTC. Technology is already there. And over time you see how they are moving or enabling the use of WebRTC from clients. So today I I have the Microsoft Teams client installed because they use Windows 11, but I never open it. I just use the web browser. And the reason I do that is because I want to see each time that I run it, what did they improve from last time and the changes that they make in it and how the optimizations are becoming part of the product. So two years ago, you did the Microsoft Teams call. On a browser, you had something like a switching MS- SFU, which meant that you only see the speaking person, not everyone at the same time, and it mixes the audio. Today, you actually see everyone on the same screen because they the you know, simulcast and the other technologies that are needed to make that happen. So over time, you see how they migrate, at least on the website, to use more and more of WebRTC's capabilities. Are they changing things in their infrastructure in the backend? Probably yes and probably no at the same time. So for example, WebRTC uses Opus, Microsoft announced uh, Satin, which is their machine learning based codec that gives you better quality for lower bit rates with packet losses and whatever. Why? Because they can and they wanted some kind of advantage in the media processing path.
1: And Opus is, is the open source audio codec, right? Yes. And what about the video?
2: When it comes to WebRTC, most companies started by using VP8. Unless they needed to go and stream stuff to YouTube and you know, Twitch and stuff like that, they end up staying with VP8. Now more of them are moving towards VP9 and scalable video coding there. Google Meet uses VP9, for example, out of the box. AV1 is the next codec that will be there. It will take one or two more years, is my guess to actually hit some kind of um, relevant use case in video conferencing that is used by the majority of the users of that platform and is usable. It is definitely not the case today. Still, you see AV1, people are starting to use it in different places. The two main, I wouldn't call them even use cases, but minor scenarios within large conferencing systems is either if the bitrate is very, very low, then you might as well use AV1 because now I don't really care about the CPU load that it's going to take. It's just going to give me better quality on very low bitrate. And the other use case that is being discussed and talked about is screen sharing. There is a notion that with AV1, the quality of text that is being compressed is higher than what you get with other codecs. If that's true or not, I don't know. I've seen a few examples, but not live ones.
0: Yeah, I can uh, actually validate that it is the case. And I also uh, know of at least one pretty major platform that is, uh, and and I don't think it's in production yet, but it's certainly being planned and the integration work's being done now, where they're going to run two codecs. So it will be AV1 initially for screen content coding because again you're absolutely right the trade-offs of the compute you know required to run the AV1 encoder in software uh, compared to VP8 or or H.264 so for the webcam it's going to be VP8 H.264 in this particular platform I'm aware of Um, screen content though is for the most part going to be AV1 and it's because they can push the bit rates incredibly low i mean you know 100 kilobits and it looks very readable
2: cisco announced that on their website they said that they're going to do that that was a year ago for webex and but there were a lot of caveats then it was like this is beta it's only on the downloadable app only on windows only on screen sharing and only if both sides of the call have that capability which meant no one and since then they haven't updated it as far as i know at least not updated the industry about what they are doing
0: yeah this isn't cisco and you are correct all of these early uh, applications, you, you know, yeah, there's a lot of caveats. <laughs> you, you're right about that, but it is interesting. You know, it is fascinating your observation that um, there's just a lot of interest in WebRTC from people who have traditionally been in more HTTP streaming, your HLS type world. And so what that means is everyone's kind of saying, well, how do I get hiked high- high quality, Um, you know, I think people understand there is a compromise, uh, but codecs come into question, you know, like, hey, is it possible to use WebRTC with HEVC, for example, Um, or fill in the blank, you know, there's other codecs. So what's the answer to that uh, today? And then is there a path in the future? that more codecs could be opened up?
2: So no, there isn't a path. The codecs that you have in WebRTC today are VP8, VP9, AV1, and H.264. The reason is that these, these are the ones that you have is simply because this is what Google wants. So in a way, you have HEVC in some use cases, in Chrome, for specific devices. But again, it's probably for iPhones to have HEVC because they can get around the licensing issue. And the main problem is licensing costs and royalties that come along with these codecs. And the second thing is you need to be on the good side of Google to make things happen with WebRTC. That's the sad part. Okay. If you look at the, code, the browsers today, all of them use a library called LibWebRTC, which is the open source implementation of WebRTC. Google is the one that owns that, the one that created that, maintains that, and develops it. It's hard to put code in there without... Well, it's hard to put code in there, period, because think of it, you're Google, you've got 2 billion people running Chrome. If I let you put one line of code in there, it means that now I'm responsible for what happens to 2 billion people, and I can also be sued about that one line of code which you might have stolen from someone. So if I don't know you, I'm not going to let you do that anyway. And if I know you, you need to go over a lot of different hurdles to actually get that in. So getting something into WebRTC code base today is really, really hard. Now this LibWebRTC that exists in Chrome also exists in Microsoft Edge because Edge and Chrome are the same browser. The inards are the same. If you look at Firefox, well, guess what? They also take and use WebRTC as is. And if you look at Safari, the same. So you you end up in a monoculture of using the same WebRTC implementation across all browsers. And the company behind all that is Google, for better and worse, which means that the answer to your question is that depends if Google wants and needs that codec somewhere within their products. And if the answer is no, then it's not going to happen.
0: So what do you make of the news that just came out actually this week or maybe the end of last week of Chrome supporting HEVC?
2: Well, it supported AV1 a year or two ago already, and there were you know, announcements that YouTube uses AV1. From there to get something into WebRTC is a lot more work. Putting a decoder, I'm guessing that it's very, very hard, but it's stupidly simple compared to putting a full encoder decoder that runs in real time inside something like WebRTC, inside the browser.
1: Yeah, if, even the decoder, what they announced is that I think they're going to use the hardware that's already present on the machine for HEVC and, and enable that through the browser.
2: Yes, and again, the reason for that is we don't want to deal with patents. Now, the other part of it, you talked about it, if it's available on the machine. So we all love hardware codecs, right? They're the best. The only problem is them. if, if they have a bug, there is no way around it. You're screwed now you can say that the decoders are easy because given a bitstream this is how you decode them and most of them probably do that okay-ish i'm saying okay because at low bit rates they start mumbling and they're they start fudging things a bit what about the encoder now who is doing hardware encoders and for what purpose
1: you mean inside platforms like like pcs and mobile phones
2: yes what is the purpose of putting it there
1: In mobile phones, it's obvious they're doing it for the video recording function.
2: Exactly. They're doing it so that small kids will be able to take videos and send them and publish them on TikTok. But this, at the end of the day, is an offline experience. So the bitstream that you are creating isn't optimized for real time. It doesn't do things like CBR, constant bitrate. It does VBR most of the time. And variable bitrate will kill real time video. You can't do it with live. Then it uses tools that don't exist in real time, like B-frames. I can look into the future. No, you can't. There are no B-frames in something like WebRTC. You have too many I-frames. Again, you don't send I-frames with WebRTC unless you must. And unless you must means that someone complained on the other side most of the time. So there are a lot of things that are different on the encoder that you don't want and the encoder forces you to do. And then they also don't work at bitrates of 100 kilobits per second because nobody records such a thing to upload to TikTok. So once you start lowering the bitrates for these hardware codecs, they start complaining and they don't work and they crash and they don't, they don't spew the bitrate that they're supposed to. And that's when many vendors would say, you know, screw that, I'm going to just do software encoders instead. Even though the hardware ones have better CPU performance and whatever because I can't guarantee that all phones in the world and all PCs in the world will have the hardware that is capable of doing that. And I don't have the time or the resources to even test for that. So we've seen that with WebRTC two years ago, pandemic started, Google found out two things and they found out one thing and that that WebRTC is not ready. The CPU wasn't there. So they started working on their own optimization of the WebRTC code base to be able to do group calls to take the CPU and run it on lower end devices. And one of the things that they started was say, well, you know, there are codecs on the device. Why don't we use that and not use software? And you started seeing every two weeks, we've got this inside service that provides you this kind of information. But we started to see that every week or two, there was a new bug with a new kind of a device of a crash because of hardware encoder or hardware decoder. And they started just new bug fixing all of that. And that's like, it's grueling work. And every once in a while, there's one that crops up on one type of a device, and they still need to go and fix that. So hardware is nice, but it's hard.
1: So previously, you mentioned kind of in passing the web codex API. Can you give a bit more details about it? Is this something that enables you to use hardware software codecs that are uh, installed in the system? Yes.
2: WebRTC in the browser is built like a monolith. It's like take it or leave it. This is what you have, use the APIs that are here, and that's it. But now we have a question. I don't want to send data over the network. I I want to do it offline. I want to do it not in real time. I want latency, a delay in it. I want to do things on my own. You can't do it with WebRTC at all because it's real time and it forces you to do things in a very certain way. And then you started seeing three or four different technologies in browsers that enable you to build WebRTC on your own using JavaScript code. It starts with WebAssembly Okay, essentially WebAssembly means I'm going to run machine language code directly inside the browser. So I'm going to take code written in C, cross-compile it to WebAssembly, send that to a browser, no matter the browser, you'll be able to run that. Similar to the just-in-time compilers and the uh, byte code that you have in Java. So that's one. People use WebAssembly today alongside WebRTC, but not only in order to uh, do things with machine learning. So TensorFlow Lite that runs in the browser uses that in order to do all of the computations, but also people use it to take bits and pieces of WebRTC itself, like the media stack or the network stack and cross-compile it to WebAssembly so they can run it in the browser on their own independently. Then you have a technology called WebTransport. I can't use HTTPS to send what I want because that's going to be slow. It runs on TCP, the retransmissions, I don't need it. So they decided that there is something called web transport. It allows me to send data to a server on an unreliable channel. At the end of the day, that's on top of UDP directly, which is great. So now I can send my own data and I can envision or rewrite RTP and RTCP on my own or something similar to that. And the third part is I just need a codec. I don't need WebRTC, but I have a frame. I want to encode it and compress it. So they said, let's take the codecs in WebRTC. We already have that wrap them up with a different API called web codec. You shove a frame into it, you get it compressed on the other side and vice versa for the decoder.
1: So basically it's unbundling, right? Because WebRTC kind of gives you a bundle, okay? You take these codecs and this transport and this is how you do it and you get video streams going in and out. Yes. And now you're unbundling all of that and saying, okay, you can use the codecs that you want and you can use the transport that you want and you can build the whole system but then, you're on your own because you're taking all of these uh, components and integrating them into your own system as an alternative to the monolithic uh, WebRTC.
2: Yes, and that's what Zoom is doing, and it's still clunky because Web codecs and Web pr- transport are new, and WebAssembly is new, and you have Dolby that came out with their own Dolby 3D audio spatial uh, codec that they have, and putting that in WebRTC so you can I can do now a web call. With video that is done using WebRTC, but the whole audio around that is going to be the audio codec coming from Dolby and not Opus, with all of the bells and whistles that they have to offer there, and that will give me a different type of an experience. And all of that is done using Web Transport, Web Codec, and WebAssembly, not Web Codec because they even compiled the codec with WebAssembly to make it happen.
1: And and where do you see that uh, going? Is this something that you think is going to uh... Uh, evolve, and more and more companies are going to unbundle WebRTC and use directly the Web Transport and Web Codecs API in order to uh, uh, to optimize things, optimize performance, optimize quality, optimize for an application.
2: It's a good question. I don't know the answer. I would say that most will not take that route, and those that do would be the ones that have the experience and the know-how beforehand. So companies like Dolby can do it, company like Zoom can do it, Microsoft, Cisco can do that. But a new small startup that want to go to the healthcare space should not touch that with a long stick. Okay? And you've got a lot of these companies today that use WebRTC without knowing anything about that fumbling around and figuring out how to do things. You can't do it with something like Web codecs and Web transport and that's one type of companies, the ones that want to do video conferencing wouldn't go there unless they know what they're doing. The other type of vendors are those that have other types of use cases and scenarios. So let's take live streaming. Simple example. Would you use WebRTC for live streaming? Some would say yes. Others would say, well, we can use web transport on web codecs instead. And what do we gain? Two things. The first one, I don't need turn servers. This is a new term. We didn't talk about that. But WebRTC uses turn server in order to, in order to traverse firewalls. And the thought process goes like this. I can use web transport or web sockets if web transport won't work. And then I can pass the data that I have from the server to the client directly or from the client to the server directly without the need for extra servers, extra turn servers. So this would simplify my deployment. So the infrastructure that I have will be simpler. And now if I want to do live streaming or something similar, that might be the better approach. I might want to, be, to do something that is you know, anywhere between a second to two seconds latency. And then using Web Transport or WebSocket with Web Codecs is a better choice than using WebRTC. And it is a better choice than using LLHLS and getting into that exact place that I want it. OK, so there will be use cases where it would make sense to go and use Web Codecs directly and to use Web Transport directly.
0: And you're saying that would get a, a latency range of like one or two seconds? roughly.
2: You can get it to sub-second as well but if what I want is between one or two because if I'm in the one to two seconds latency I can say I can have summary transmissions to improve the quality further than what I can on the sub-second one okay so I can have a bit more leeway in what I'm doing and improve the quality just because of that.
0: Yeah and for many many Broadcast type streaming like event applications, one or two seconds is more than low enough latency. It's it's very good actually.
2: And the complexity cost of that would probably be at the same rate of WebRTC or a lot lower, somewhere in there. So now I can start optimizing for my costs.
0: That's a very good question. Can you characterize what the cost difference is? Um and, you know, and I'll let you make the assumptions as to how you answer the question, but of an HLS streaming system and a WebRTC in this kind of broadcast type scenario.
2: So I'll start with the price point that you see for CPAS vendors. If you go to Twilio, Agora, Vonage, Daily, wherever you go, Dolby, you'll see the number 0.04 dollars, which is like four cents or something like that per minute. That's the cost. Cloudflare streams just came out and they said that they're going to price it at a dollar per thousand minutes. So that's going to be their starting price for streaming, for live streaming using WebRTC. I don't know where the price points are for HLS, but you can do the comparison from there.
0: So I I understand that, but I I was asking the question and maybe it's more of like even an architectural, you know, type question. So maybe it's not so much dollars and cents, but Uh, What is the comparison? Like, if someone uh, said, Hey, I actually could deploy WebRTC or I could use a traditional HTTP methodology, where from a complexity perspective is there an advantage?
2: It's a lot more complicated to do it with WebRTC. Because one thing that you don't do with WebRTC is deal with files. Because everything is ephemeral. It's like it's here, it's there, it's lost, nobody cares. What you do with HLS and all of the streaming kind of services is I'm uploading a file from here, downloading it there, sending it over there. It's always files, and they're always fine. Yeah, and
0: like you said, if you drop a packet, you just resend it.
2: Yes, I'm going to resend you the same file. I'm going to give you a different file of a lower bitrate because we do ABR. These are the solutions that you have. With WebRTC, if you even talk to someone about ABR and compression in the server on the cloud, they would be like, Why? okay they need that they just don't know it yet so what they do instead they say well we're going to you know we've got this client over there he's sending the data let's do simulcast and he'll send the three bit rates that we need and we'll we'll manage with these now the best thing about that is webrtc knows a lot better than hls what is the bitrate on the network because it it checks that more times per second it sits on the network and feels the heartbeat of the network at all times and it does that on the udp level so you can do a lot more with it in terms of the optimizations that you have, but it also means that you need to work a lot harder. And we talked about optimizations earlier.
1: Yeah, it's 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 really, you know, kind of fascinating the way you decipher all of these different protocols and APIs so people can understand, you know, the, the trade-offs and where we are going. And as, as you look a bit uh, into, into the future, uh, because we know that, You're the person on the pulse of WebRTC and video communication in general. What's coming up? What's going to be the next development in this area in the next year or two? Where is it going?
2: What you see today are two huge, huge cases. One of them is live streaming. It starts happening now a lot more than it used to a year or two ago. You see just many vendors going there. And the question is, again, are they going to make money? Because if they're not, they're going to die. And In order to make money, you need to first figure out why should someone switch from LLHLS to WebRTC, because WebRTC is going to be slightly more expensive, at least slightly more expensive. So what would be the incentive for me as a customer to switch? So there will be specific niche use cases where that would be valid. And then there are just too many vendors running towards that. You know, headlong into there and I don't know what will happen.
1: Yeah, so too, too many vendors, meaning either consolidation or some will drop off or...
2: We're in a recession, some will drop off. That's my, my feeling and opinion. Then you've got the other set of things that are happening, and that's there is an increase in the use of machine learning, everything around the call itself. So we do noise suppression, background replacement, lighting adjustment to the person, We're going to see things like camera following the person, like, you know, Mark, your camera does automatically, but I can do it on software as well. So all of these niceties are going to be part and parcel of what you do with WebRTC in a group call. And there are a lot of companies today that are trying to crack uh, the code to how you do collaboration. What is the more important part? Is that the Google doc or presentation in PowerPoint that we're both sitting on at the moment and working with? Or is it the video call and then joining the actual PowerPoint in there and sharing that with others? Is that the huddle inside Slack? Is that me sitting at home all day trying to communicate with my team abroad where all of them are in their houses and there is no small talk anymore? How do I bring that back? And there are a lot of different companies and startups and large companies that are trying to solve different parts of this puzzle, each one taking a totally different direction. We'll see more of that. But I don't think that we will see a winner this year or even the next.
1: So it's still something that's, that's evolving exactly how this collaboration will happen in the real world. And then, you know, the immediate question is, how will it happen in the metaverse? What, what will that look like when people talk to each other, share presentations, see their avatars or their real video or a mix or whatever?
2: <laughs> I'm just reading a book about the metaverse. It's so far away it always depends how you how you end up how you define it <laughs> exactly if you define it with me putting oculus for the next two hours and it needs to do 100, 120 frames per second at 4k resolutions yes right go figure out how we're going to do that for 10 people in parallel so it's it's going to take a lot of time to get there so i'm not worried too much about the metaverse at the moment
0: well, thank you uh, for sh- sharing the insights. Um, what my big takeaway is, is that if you're going to embark on WebRTC, you have to be committed for the long haul.
1: <laughs> that, that's a great one.
0: And, and I also can see where, um, it, you know, it'd be very interesting to follow up and maybe talk about the role of these CPaaS um, platforms, because what also comes to my mind is you know, is that some of the value? Is it presumably these people, some of these companies have been at it for a lot of years and and they're doing that continuous improvement. So even though they all compete with different feature sets or whatever, like it almost seems to me like one of the advantages is just simply that they have a team of engineers who have been focused for years and have walked through, you know, a lot of those steps, which, even if you have a group of smart engineers, if you're only working in a single company, you're seeing a single use case, you know, are you going to be able to cover everything?
1: Yeah. So my takeaway is if, if you're building um, web uh, communication, video communication uh, service, then if you're doing it for uh, um, a particular uh, use case and, and you're dealing with that use case, you don't want to deal with the details, then use a CPaaS. Definitely. But if you want to build it on your own, or if you are a CPAS, then talk to Tsachi. Great. So thanks, Tsachi. It was a real pleasure to have you today. Uh, we learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners enjoyed it as well. So thank you very much.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: And uh, to all of our listeners, we will wish you, as usual, happy encoding. Happy ultra-low latency streaming. Happy ultra low latency, real time two way and Web RTC using WebRTC, <laughs> web transport, web codecs, or just uh, using a CPAS. So thank you very there much you and we'll see you next time. Right. Bye. Thank you for listening to the
0: Video Insiders podcast. If you'd like to appear on the show, just send an email to thevideoinsiders at beamer.com. That's B-E-A-M-R.com with a brief description on what you're working on and why you think it's interesting for our audience. This podcast is sponsored by Beamer Imaging. The views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity that they represent.